Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to just read the whole story, the first 12 verses to begin. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the Christmas story obviously has a lot of interesting elements to it, and it's always a challenge to decide which part we want to focus on every year. But that's also part of what makes the Christmas story so wonderful, is the range of people who experienced Jesus' birth. We have the shepherds. We sing of the lowly shepherds abiding in their fields to the least. But we also have wise men. We also have people who have gifts and wealth to give to Jesus. God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't look at the rich and say, well, you need to get it together if you want to come to me. And he doesn't say to the poor, well, if you had a little more money, then maybe we could work something out. God desires all to find salvation in his son. And so we're going to look at these wise men tonight. Because they set an example for us as people who sought after God based on the little knowledge that they had and pursued it to the end until they found Jesus in Bethlehem. Y'all have heard me read this before. Some of my favorite verses are in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. It says, If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. It calls them wise men. These men were seekers of wisdom, and their search for wisdom brought them to Jesus. That's pretty significant, isn't it? Who the Bible calls the true wisdom from God. And all of us are on a similar journey. Similar, actually, I'm going to point out, in seven different ways. And some of us, in a way, have reached our journey's end. We've come and we've found Jesus. Some of us, or some of us that we love, others that we love, might be still on that journey. And if you've found Jesus, if you've come into the end, I hope it reminds you of the goodness of God and the value of what you found. And if you're still searching, if you still say, you know, I don't know if I've found God yet. I don't know if I've found the answers yet. Whether you're here now or if you're going to hear it on the recording later, I can tell you that your journey can end tonight or whenever you're listening to this. You can find entrance into a new life because it's the end of the journey, but it's really not. It's the beginning of a whole new life that God wants to show you in Jesus Christ. So let's look at this story. We'll start more or less at the beginning and we're going to work through seven things 
that make our journey with the Lord similar to theirs. Now he says in verse 1, after Jesus was born. This is important to know. Despite what my nativity scene back home says, the wise men did not show up the night of Jesus' birth. This should not shatter anybody's theology or a crisis of faith. It's just what does the Bible say and learning what it says. Because it says in verse 11, they came to the house where they were staying. So in Luke and in the stories when the shepherds came, he was still staying in the stable in the manger. But we know from verse 16 that Herod is going to order the hunting down of all children who were under two years of age. Also, they're still in Bethlehem. They haven't left to go back to Nazareth yet. So it's probably not that long after Jesus' birth. They call him a child, which is different than an infant, obviously. But it's not that far after. And he says that there were wise men from the east in verse 1. That word for wise men is magoi or magus in Greek. It's where we get our word for magician. We talked about the gift of the magi. It's where we get the word magician from. And in fact, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they use this word in Daniel to translate the word astrologer. It's interesting to think about that. And they came from the east, which is rather indefinite, but this is probably coming from Babylon or Persia or somebody, it seems as likely as any other option, who would have preserved the tradition of Daniel, who was, of course, a prophet in Babylon and into the Persian Empire as well. And they would have known to look for a king of the Jews. So these guys are hardly the most likely candidates to come and worship Jesus. They're not even Jews, and they're... Magoi, they're magi, they're magicians, they're astrologers, and they're going to come and worship Jesus. And yet these men were blessed to find him. In our journey towards wisdom, which is really our journey towards God, here's the first thing. We all have to start somewhere. And here's the cool thing. Where your journey begins is unimportant to God. He's not going to hold it against you. In fact, in Luke 14, Jesus is telling a parable of the master giving a banquet and everybody he invites, all his friends, all the people who should come, come up with a bunch of excuses of why they can't come. So in Luke 14, verse 21, down to verse 23, the servant came and reported these things to his master. So the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. He told that story to illustrate this fact, that many of those who you look at them and you think, that's somebody who's going to find God. They deserve to find Jesus. Many of those people are not going to find him. But it also teaches us that your past is no hindrance to salvation. These guys were magicians. They were astrologers. They would have maybe not been the ones who communed with the false gods and performed the necromantic arts that the Bible warned against, but I'm sure they knew people who did. <laughs> they were colleagues, you could say. But they found Jesus. Jesus would call tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. Paul the Apostle was what we would call a terrorist. What does that mean? That means God delights to clean and repair dirty, broken vessels. You can never have gone too far to turn around and have God save you. You don't need to clean yourself up first. Just begin the journey and the Lord will not hold what you have done against you. That's the first thing. We all have to start somewhere. 
What's the next one? Well, keeping in mind, these guys were astrologers. They looked to the stars to tell them about the future and tell them about what was going to happen. And so it makes sense that they were the ones that saw the star because they were the ones looking for it until it showed them in verse 10 where Jesus was. Now, I'm going to make very clear. This is not a biblical endorsement of astrology. Okay? In fact, the Bible warns very strongly against that in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And then Isaiah 47 has this big mocking diatribe against these people that trusted in the movement of the stars to tell them their future. So that's no good. This was likely a unique event. It wasn't that, well, the plans we've always had, the Mayan calendar or whatever, it, it warned about Jesus. You can see this star is not really acting like a normal star, is it? Like, well, we can see it and now we can't and now it's moving and now it's not moving. God was leading them there. It doesn't really explain it, so I'm not going to pretend to explain it. But either way, I think it's a great picture of how God can use any number of quote-unquote hooks to draw people to himself. We all have something different that draws us to Jesus. You could say we all follow a star of some kind. Star in quotes. You don't actually see a star unless maybe you did. I don't know your story. <laughs> but each one of us has a different reason to begin that journey. Sometimes it's a tragedy. Something happens in your life that rocks your world and it makes you sit up and start to think about God and life and death or maybe it's just a question everything's going well in your life and everything seems fine but you're dissatisfied and there's just these questions in your mind that you can't answer and it starts you thinking my grandfather when he got saved was invited he was a bad kid in, in his middle school years invited by another bad kid to go to church because the church was having their rally invite a friend thing you have to invite this many people come on come to church with me you'll be fine he found out that some of the cute girls from school happened to go to this church all right fine i'll go to church no problem but when he was there the lord got a hold of his life he was saved and my whole family has been dedicated to the lord since that day the lord is not above using things like that to draw people John 15, 26, Jesus said, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit is at work in all of our lives, drawing us to Jesus. And it doesn't have to look a certain way. You read people's stories about how they first came to Jesus, and sometimes it makes you go, oh, I don't know about that. You were an astrologer watching the stars and you saw one and it told you to come to Judea. Okay, fine. I'm glad you found Jesus. The Lord is, is like, hey, I just want people to find me. I want people to find the truth. So he's willing to draw us. Every one of us has that awakening of the soul where you could say we start to look up. We start to look to the stars, so to speak. We start to wonder, is there anything out there? What is this life? What is this about? And that's God working in us. We all follow a star. Next one, they come to Jerusalem to inquire about the new king. And it says the city was troubled. Well, I've seen the movie. Three camels come in. One guy's got a red hat. One guy's got a blue hat. One guy's got a green hat. What's everybody troubled about? It probably was closer to what you see in the movie Aladdin with Prince Ali Ababwa comes in and the dancers and the elephants and the treasures. And everyone's like, whoa, who is this? And then they say, well, what are you doing here? We're looking for the new king. Everyone goes, uh-oh. Because who's king now? Herod the Great is king. Herod was not a good guy. Not only were they under Roman occupation, but Herod was a paranoid madman. They used to say that it was safer to be a pig in Herod's barn than to be a son living in his house. He was always accusing his wives and his sons of plotting against him and having them executed. But they're going around asking questions. 
Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? In the same way, number three, we all have questions. When you first have that moment where you're like, you know, is there more to life? And you start thinking about it, you're going to start to have questions. And you're going to start to look for answers. The more you think about God and life and death, you start to wonder about things. And here's the great thing the Bible does. The Bible teaches us that God is not afraid of your questions. Isn't that great? In fact, the book of Habakkuk, there's others, but Habakkuk especially is all about God answering the prophet's question and then the prophet having more questions and then God giving him an answer and then him asking another question. The Bible tells us that God is big enough to answer your question. So here's the thing. I urge you, and we as Christians should be urging everyone that we know and love, if they've got questions, keep asking, keep seeking. Awaken your mind, awaken your heart. There's nothing to be afraid of somebody seeking, because the Bible says if you seek, you will find. If you read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, which is about, it's a fictional story, obviously, but it's supposed to be a demon who's been experienced with tempting people for a long time, writing to uh, a new junior demon who's just got his first person that he's trying to tempt. And he says, don't awaken his mind. Don't teach him to start thinking logically. Don't teach him to start asking questions because if he starts seeking questions, he might actually start thinking through them and coming to the answers that we don't want him to. So it's better to keep him emotional, better to keep him bitter, better to keep him distracted. In fact, we're told as Christians in 1 Peter 3.15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, for a reason for the hope that is in you, doing it with gentleness and respect. Not only does the Lord say questions are okay, he told his people, hey, learn how to answer those questions. We are to be trained to answer questions and to suggest new ones. It's something I find a lot when somebody's got one question they're really thinking through. I'll be like, okay, have you thought about this? What about this also? The Bible has promised that if you seek God with all your heart, you'll find him. So if you've got questions, keep asking. Keep asking. So what happens here? Herod summons the religious experts. Hey, where is, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And they quote to him, verse uh, 6 is a quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which was prophesied hundreds of years before that from Bethlehem in the region of Ephrathah would be born the Messiah. And apparently, this is interesting, the star was not some sort of cosmic GPS that was telling them where to go. Apparently, it led them to a place where they had to go and ask. Just interesting to note that there. But now they find out, you're talking about the Messiah? You're talking about the king of the Jews who's going to come? That Isaiah talked about? That Micah talked about? You, you mean he's been born now? Well, now they know that. That this is not just any king. This is the king of kings. Now, if these astrologers had sneered at the Jewish legends, that's just folk tales. I'm not interested in your ridiculous scriptures. Let me maybe demythologize that a little bit and get to what's really going on behind it. They would never have found Jesus. In the same way, number four, we all find answers in God's word. Christians are not Muslims. We encourage questions. But nor are we Hindus because we are going to insist upon answers. If you're in Islamic faith, you do not question anything. There can even be violent reprisal for asking questions. But if you go to a pantheistic culture like India or Nepal where there's Buddhism and Hinduism... You can ask questions all day long, but you're never supposed to come to an answer. Just asking the questions, it's part of the process, man, right? Well, we don't do that either. We want to come to answers. 
And the Bible is God's repository of answers. It is all the stories of how God spoke to his people, of how he interacted with people. It's got written teachings of God saying, hey, I want you to write this down. Tell them about me. Tell them what's true. It's been recorded for our benefit. 2 Timothy chapter 3.15, Paul is writing to Timothy. He said, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If you're seeking after truth, you have to be honest. And here's the thing. A lot of people who, especially those who claim the name skeptic, I'm a skeptic. Okay, that's fine to be a skeptic. We're fine with being a skeptic, but what they'll do is, I'm a skeptic, which means I don't believe in any organized religion. Well, time out. <laughs> Are you a skeptic or do you hate organized religion? That's not the same thing. I'm a skeptic, but I believe everything that the scientists tell me. Well, hold on. Are you a skeptic or aren't you? If you're a skeptic, you should be willing to follow the evidence where it leads. And if you've blocked off the Bible as a source of answers right away, you're not being honest, you're being biased. Well, that can't possibly be it. Why not? Why not? That's where the answers are. The Bible has answers to the questions about the fairness of the world, the destiny and the origin of our souls, questions about right and wrong. The answers are there if you can accept them. And more often than not, it's not a matter of, I can't find the answers. It's, I got an answer and I don't like it. Well, I thought we were supposed to be skeptical scientists, accepting the answers wherever they go. And the thing is, we can be really arrogant as people when it comes to the Bible. Just like, oh, I'm not going to read that old thing. You guys, this book has transformed countless lives. It has turned terrorists into pastors. It has built and outlasted empires. It has survived every attempt to destroy it. And it has a hilarious track record of people setting out to disprove it, only to turn into apologists for it on the other end. It is worth your time. At the very least, have a little humility and say, okay, maybe there's more to this than me and my short life understands. I guarantee you that the word of God, the Bible, which is living and powerful, will transform your life. And here's my other recommendation. Don't take filtered water or pre-digested food, at least at first. Don't look at what some YouTube channel says about the Bible or some podcast or some book. Just read it. You can find apps online that will read it to you <laughs> at whatever speed you like. Go straight to the source and see for yourself. We all find answers in God's word. Now, by following their star, completed by the scriptures, it's important. It's not just the journey. You have to line up with what God says is true at some point. They arrive at the house of Jesus, and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. My high school choir sang with the Gaithers one time, and they had a song. It was one line. It was, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with great joy. And it was that line for 12 minutes, just a whole room of people singing it. So every time I hear that, I've got that tune in my head. Not going to sing it right now. You can ask me later. But this is number five. We all rejoice to see Jesus. When you find Jesus at the end of your search, the joy can be overwhelming because you realize I've found him. Or even more accurately, he's found me. I love reading stories of men and women who have searched their whole lives and then they find Jesus and they're like, this is it. I finally found it. Keith Green is my, one of my favorite biographies. He was a guy who said, when I find the truth, like before he was a Christian, he said, whenever I find what's true, I'm going to give my entire life to it and nobody can stop me. And he was, he was biased. He said, I'm not going to Jesus. I'm not going to the church because Christians are all hypocrites. And he tried like every religion. It's crazy. You read his book. But then he comes to a point where he's like, well, okay, maybe not Christians, but Jesus seems to be okay. 
So I'm a fan of Jesus. I'm a Jesusite, you know. And then after a while, he goes, okay, Jesus and the Bible too. I mean, the Bible seems pretty good. And then after a while, he's like, I, I found it. I found the truth. And that guy lived a radical life for Jesus. Because he said, once I find the truth, I'm never going back. There's joy. When Simeon, the prophet in the temple, would see the baby Jesus, he said in Luke 2, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Translation, Lord, now I can die happy because I've seen the Messiah. And this is not just because Jesus is the answer to life, the universe, and everything, although he is. All philosophy, all theology, it all comes down to Jesus. He is the sticking point because you, either, you can't be halfway with Jesus. But beyond that, it's because when you find Jesus, you don't just find him in the manger. You find his gospel and everything that he came for, that he died on a cross for your sins and he rose from the dead offering forgiveness of your sins and eternal life after death. All your baggage, all your flaws, all the things that freak you out and make you start to sweat if you think, if anybody found out about that. All of that, the Lord sees it and he welcomes you in love anyway. All this time and you find out what's so great, Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. That all the time it's been Jesus drawing you to him. Let me ask you a question. How would you feel if you knew that you were loved unconditionally, beyond a shadow of a doubt, even if you have the greatest marriage in the whole world, you still got those moments like, okay, but she, she's got she's to know what I'm like. How does she, why does she put up with me? We ask each other that, right? Why, 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 do you, why do we put up with each other? But how could you feel if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loved you that much? That's why when we see Jesus, we rejoice because we've found somebody who knows everything about you and loves you anyway. And then they came and they gave gifts. Of course, the famous gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. You know what gold is. Frankincense and myrrh are tree saps. Tree saps that come out of trees and then they can be crystallized and used in perfume or... Uh, oils, medicinal purposes, some of them. And the point of the story is they were very, very expensive. These were kingly gifts for a poor family that couldn't even afford a place to stay. And it would probably save their lives because you know in the story, they had to flee to Egypt when Herod set, sent out the massacre of all the children. But how do you think Mary and Joseph felt to see their son being so honored? One, two years old, maybe? <laughs> And these astrologers from Babylon show up. Uh-oh, someone's at the door. Mary locked the door. Is this the home of, of Joseph? Yes. Is your son there? What do you want? <laughs> We've come to worship him. You've come to what? And then they open the door and they come in and they're falling to their feet at little Jesus. And they're giving Gold and frankincense and myrrh and heaping praise upon him. These were not people that Jews would have been comfortable with. These are Gentiles, number one. Not only Gentiles, these are wealthy Gentiles from Babylon, where they had been in exile for 70 years. And they're astrologers. They're magicians. They're, they're practicing the arts that the Lord told them never to practice. How did you find us? Well, we saw a star in the sky. Okay, you're not touching this baby. <laughs> But Mary and Joseph were sensitive to the Lord and they knew that this was legitimate and they were sincere. 
because they had finally found what they were looking for. And just like the wise men, number six, we all give gifts to Jesus Christ. You might think, not me. I've got nothing to offer God. I've got nothing to offer Jesus. That's, that was the point at the beginning. I thought you said it didn't matter. Here's the thing. This is what God does. He takes your life, your ordinary life, that really does have nothing to offer, and he turns it into something extraordinary. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul tells the Romans, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's your spiritual worship. You want to have worship that is acceptable to God? Give your life to him. You know, probably one of my least favorite Christmas songs is The Little Drummer Boy. It has nothing to do with the Bible story. It's like, oh, who invented that? Oh, what if there was a drummer and he uh, went to the manger with baby Jesus and he's going to show up, ladies, if you've had children, and somebody showed up with a drum and said, hi, I'd like to play this for your newborn baby. That's, it's sort of strange, but there is something about that that is very biblical, which is, look, I don't have anything. I just play a drum. Can I play my drum for you? And the Lord accepts those silly little things from us. What, what do I do? I, I drive a junk truck, Jesus. Well, who am I? No one knows who I am. Nobody's ever going to know who I am. But the Lord says, yeah, but I'll accept that from you. It's not a burden. It's our willing service. And the fact that the Lord accepts us, he doesn't then give you a list of demands and say, now do all this. The Lord says, just come to me. And our attitude ought to be, Lord, whatever you want. There was a guy that, that came to Jesus in our church back in Virginia, and he came to have counseling with my dad, who was the pastor. And he was saying, all right, I'm a Christian now. What do I got to do? And they start running through, here's some things you should be doing, reading your Bible, going to church, etc. And he says, now, everyone always talks about tithing. What is tithing? Now, if you know anything about discipling a new Christian, <laughs> you definitely don't want to lay it on heavy with tithing at the beginning. You don't want to say, now, you've got to give us at least 10% of your income. It's like, listen, it's not about that, man. That's what dad said. Look, it's not about the money. You just, if you feel led to give the Lord what's in your heart, that's great. And this guy cut him off and he says, hey, just tell me what to do. What a great attitude. Isn't that awesome? It's like, I'm not messing around. I found God. Tell me what to do. And that's our attitude. Your life has been ransomed from death and hell. So give it back to the Lord out of gratitude and indeed excitement too. Because the Bible says God has prepared a new life for you that's meaningful and wonderful. And he's going to reward you for it at the end. Not only is he going to save you, he's going to reward you for living up to the plan that he made for you. Jesus takes away the pain and the desperation of your life. It doesn't mean we won't have pain in life, but he takes away that deep-rooted existential thing that says, why do I bother living another day? What's the point of life? The Lord gives you a purpose. He gives you a reason to live. He gives you a reason to do the right thing, and he gives you the hope of a glorious future. Christians, maybe this is for you. Are you giving Jesus his due in your life? Or have you forgotten the joy when you first found Jesus. Well, Herod was out to get this threat to his throne, and the Lord knew it. So the Lord warned them in a dream, don't go back to Herod. You do not want to be complicit in what he's about to do. And so they went home by a different way. Look, I'm not going to tell the story of what happened next. You guys can read it for yourselves. But I do want to focus on this phrase right here. They departed to their own country by another way. When we encounter Jesus, number seven, we all go home changed. You can't go back the same way you came. 
Everything's different with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Do you think these men ever forgot this encounter? It would have changed the way they viewed everything. They would have got home and got back to their office and seen all the idols that were set up and all the astrology charts and all these things and all these false prophecies. And they would have been like, I found something real. What am I doing with all this? And this is one example of many where the Lord was seeding belief in Jesus around the world that later when the apostles came, they were ready to receive it when it came. In the same way, we cannot live the same after we encounter Jesus. He says that when we believe in him, we are born again. When you're born the first time, you have DNA and you're just a little, little baby. Even in the womb, the baby's just a tiny little couple cells, but all the DNA is there to make those cells grow into everything that it's going to be. In the same way, when you put your faith in Jesus, you're born again. The Lord gives you new spiritual DNA. And even though it's just tiny little cells right now, everything is there that will cause you to grow into everything God wants you to be. And he sends you his Holy Spirit to make it grow and to make it change. Your desires start to change. You start doing things and all of a sudden you feel bad about them and you never felt bad about them before. Your impulses change. Even the way you walk and talk and dress and watch TV and treat people, it all changes from the inside out. There are lots of great programs that try to change people's behavior, but only Jesus offers a new birth. And he's the only one that offers forgiveness for the inevitable struggles. The Lord gives us freedom to fail of all things. Because your sins have been dealt with at the cross. You're trying to live up to this new life that God's given to you. But if you fail, it's not like, oh no, I've totally blown it. The Lord says, get up and keep going. I've already taken care of that failure. It's everything that life ought to be Jesus has bought for us at the cross. Those seven things. We all have to start somewhere. We all follow a star. That initial moment that makes us think. We all have questions. and We all find answers in God's word. We all rejoice to see Jesus. We all have gifts to give him. And we all go home changed. And that's the journey's end. There's joy at the journey's end. But you know what? As I said at the beginning, it's not really the end, is it? It's the beginning of something brand new. A journey of wisdom, of true, real life. You're not living until you found Jesus. Do you guys remember this? Do you remember your story? Some of us had a longer journey to find Jesus. Some of us didn't have a very long journey. Maybe you're on it now. Maybe you're like, I'm still looking. I'm still searching. Remember that we can come to Jesus to find forgiveness of sins. And the Bible says he raises us up to walk in newness of life. And the joy that comes when you finally find what you've been looking for.